Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. Hello, marketing leaders and business executives. This is an amazing podcast today, and I'm sure many have tuned in just by seeing the brand name up there, Tableau Software. Tableau Software was acquired for over $15 billion by Salesforce in the last year or so. And a big part of that was their marketing, the way they went to go to market and scaled from $5 million in revenue when this woman joined to over $1 billion in revenue. That is Elisa Fink, and she is here with us today. And I love this episode. We got to talk about her career and how she brought her passion and love for data and driving a team, you know, in such a loyal way, being there for almost 12 years through that amazing growth and the different stages that she got to see. And we get to share in that for for a little bit here. In the second half of the podcast, if you stick around there, we'll actually also unpack how she sees the need to understand the humans that you're selling to, as she describes it. And, And I think that's the right mentality today. We get so stuck in thinking about personas, but not thinking about the individual, not thinking about how we connect with them in a more personal way. Now, the interesting thing at Tableau that you'll see is as they scaled, they got to get more and more personal, more and more human by segmenting all these different audiences. But in the early days, they still had that same mentality. Anyways, so much you're going to take away from this episode. I'm very fortunate to know Elisa. You'll get to know her here. Here goes this week's episode. Hey, Elisa, thank you so much for finding time to chat with us today on The Marketer's Journey. Your journey is awesome. Your journey is so exciting and the opportunities that you got to see, maybe just a level set for everyone tuning into the podcast. Talk to us about what happened for you in the last year or so, last Uh, couple of years. I have been so lucky. I actually have been so lucky throughout my career, but particularly I'd say the last 12 years. Oh, that's, so, <laughs> that's quite a long time to be that lucky. But in the last year, I um, I just have just retired from Tableau Software. I served as their CMO and head of marketing for about 11 and a half years from when they were about 5 million in revenue and about 30 people in the company to um, literally just over a billion in revenue and about 4,500 people. And so it was an incredible journey. And then, as I said, I just retired at the end of last year. And so I've been what I call semi-retired, where I've been advising companies and um, working with boards and doing a lot of mentoring as well. And it's just been incredibly gratifying to be able to get out there and talk to people about marketing and their journeys and where they're headed and see these exciting startups and young companies that are doing incredible stuff. So it's been just amazing. That's all. Both of those aspects are amazing. And I've been very fortunate to be one of the, the lucky getting advice from you the last little while. <laughs> well, and... I love what Uberflip does. So <laughs> thank highly you. valuable, highly valuable. Thank you. Thank you. So, I, I mean, the success of Tableau is, is outstanding. And it's, you know, I, I think one of the things that I've always admired is how little funding was also taken into that company. How, how much yeah. was it or how much of it was used? Um, gosh, well, so it, they took in $5 million at the very beginning. And then around 2008, right before the financial meltdown, right before we took another 10, and we never used any of it. 
So our co-founders and particularly our CEO co-founder, Christian Chabot, who had been in and around the VC community, was an analyst for a while. He was very clear that he did not want to give away a lot of the company. And he also recognized the value of bootstrapping. It really forces you to be very disciplined and smart and treat the money like it's your own. And so you don't, you try really hard not to do stupid things. You don't have money to blow. So you really are betting, making the best bets you can and doing the right things. And I really appreciate that. And then I also, as a secondary or maybe primary benefit is it was good for the employees. When you're not liquidating your, um, you know, when you're not um, stretching the value of your company out over with lots of investors and diluting yourselves, it really creates a lot of value for the employees. And that's a great thing. That is a great thing. So he just, was amazing and had the, his, the right goals. And mostly it was about really making sure that we spent money wisely and grew the company organically. Because if people want what you've got, they'll buy it. Having a lot of money from a VC or from investors is not a sign of success. It's a sign right. of potential, but it's not a sign of success. So when you have to earn the money to prove it, and that's what proves it, that's a great thing. So he always riled against um, people who'd say, yay, for us, we got another funding round, or we got another. And he'd be like, those aren't signs of success. Those are milestones, sure, but that's not success. Success is signing big customers or signing customers and hitting those are your milestones that matter. Those are the things that should be celebrated. And I think he just imbued that in our company and our culture, that that's what matters. And we became just a very customer-driven company. That's really interesting. I, first of all, I, I commend that. I mean, we we went a long way here at Uberflip without taking funding. It, you know, we're we're in that different world now, but we did so from a position of strength. Yeah, well, that's uh, the other big thing. It's you go to get money at a, from a position of strength. Absolutely, what a difference that makes. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I mean, to get to not just a billion dollar value, but a billion in revenue is is extremely impressive on on that type of lean mentality. So, if, if we unpack your career to getting to that and and being part of an organization where those are the the values, would you say that you entered there with that mindset to? to spend in that lean way, to spend as a marketing leader in that affordable way? Or was that a, was that a culture change for you from where you had previously been? No, I think I always, uh, um, so I'm pretty old. And so I always kind of had been around companies that, that were marketing didn't always get the budgets we needed. So, you know, and I always, I like to get stuff done. I like to make things happen. And so I always looked at the money as like the, the, the more I can stretch it, the more I can do and the more I can accomplish. So I think I've always been fairly frugal, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And so, and, and I didn't, when I joined Tableau, I actually didn't join from like, like you guys in Toronto, I didn't join from the Silicon Valley where there was a heritage or a culture of lots of money flowing. I joined from a company out in Washington, D.C., and I had worked a lot of my career in, in the East Coast and some of my career, very little of my career in the, uh, the Bay Area and some of my career in L.A., and it just wasn't a culture of like, here's all the resources you could ever need to do whatever you want with marketing. And I'm not saying that's the Bay Area culture, but there's a lot of money flowing. So I just kind of came to it naturally like, well, we're small. We got to be scrappy. We got to be gorilla. We got to stretch our dollars, you know, let's use our money. The more I can stretch it, the more I can do, the more I can accomplish. I just kind of had that mentality. And so the tableau mentality really suited me. I, I like that. It's kind of like sometimes when you have those parameters or those things that you have to fly in these guardrails, sometimes it forces you into very creative 
ideas. You know, it really does. And I really, I think that was a good thing for us. It, it made us tight and it made us lean and it made us be creative in ways that maybe having lots of money, it wouldn't have made us be forced us to be creative. That's amazing. Maybe you can, you know, just shifting gears a bit, you know, aside from the creative side, you obviously were working with a company where data was key. I mean, data was the, the name of, of the game. Yeah. Where did, where do you think you, you got your confidence in, in leading a company that was going to be so data minded, you know, as they say, eat your own dog food, drink yeah. your champagne. Yeah. What was it along your career path leading up to that, that gave both the leadership at, at Tableau and yourself the confidence to take that step? That's a great question. Um, because, you know, I grew up in a time, I, the, the idea of women and computer science and STEM and math, I was really good at math in high school, but I never thought of myself as that kind of person. So when I went to college, I went into the College of Humanities or Arts and Sciences, and I, I was an English major. And so I did not think of myself as that kind of like a data person. And so when I got out of college, I, you know, I was trained to do like nothing. And so I took a sales job with the Wall Street Journal and I liked the first couple of years. And the second year I got the third or fourth year, I got promoted into um, the big leagues. And I found myself really enjoying the part of it that was explaining the demographics and why uh, Wall Street Journal would make a good audience for it. I loved the market research of it. And I started to realize I really loved the numbers. And I remember my husband saying, well, of course you do. Every time you you, you, you go to a cocktail party, you're like, you, your eyes light up when you talk about facts and figures. And I was like, really? I didn't know that about myself. Anyway, that job kind of turned me on to market research. And I happened to find this little company that was doing computer computers, computer databases and software for marketers for like one of the very first companies doing it. And I just fell in love with it, segmentation and customer analysis. And I realized, I decided I love this. I didn't love sales. And so I took a step back in my career and went from being like a pretty prestigious Wall Street Journal ad sales rep job with a car phone and back in the days when they were in your car and a credit card to like this little this little tech company where I was going to be a client service representative. And a lot of people thought I was nuts because it's like, why would you do that? But it was the best thing I ever did. I was This pretty, was moving over to Claritas? Yes. I was pretty mediocre as a sales rep. But I realized I had this passion for numbers and data and marketing. And I found this job at Claritas. And the day I walked into that company, I knew I was home. I knew that I was in the right space for me. So, you know, I just, I really felt like that, that sense of um, knowing who, it, and I didn't, maybe didn't even know who I was, but knowing you fit and, and knowing that what you love to do is what that company loves to do is a really valuable thing to have in your career. And I would encourage people to gain that alignment, gain the alignment between your magic, your superpower and what your company needs. Um, it just is only going to help your career and you're going to love your job. You know, you're just going to have fun every day. Um, it's hard. It's still hard. There's still hard things to do, but you're just going to have more passion and more interest in it. That's awesome. And, and, the, the funny thing is, as I look up this on paper, is thinking about moving from the Wall Street Journal where you were up and up. Who would have thought back in you know, 1990 totally. that it would, it would be the tech person retiring you know, to yes. success at such a, such a young oh. age versus you know the the senior person at Wall Street Journal is probably not retiring in the same way these days. Yeah, you know, and it, it, you know what? It's another good lesson too because – 
you get a little hung up early in your career on things like, well, I work for, you know, Facebook or I work for Wall Street Journal and you don't take chances. Like, like somebody who's coming to Uberflip or even to Tableau back in the day, it's a risk because you, you know, you don't have that prestige that's backing you. But if you really pay attention to the fundamentals of a company, the problems they solve, do their customers love what they're doing? Is there growth opportunity? Lean into the growth, even if it's not yet prestigious or not yet known in young in your career, it's the time to take risks with companies that maybe don't have that brand yet. And you're going to be part of the story. You're going to be part of the growth of that. So that was a lucky thing for me because I was a little hung up on, well, I work for the Wall Street Journal. That's awesome. And then when I left, it was quite a, you know, whoa, I work for this unknown, uh, unknown named company, but it was the best like the one move in my career that was undoubtedly changed my, my career and my life so much, of course, you know, joining Tableau even more so, but I would have never joined Tableau had I not made that move back in, you know, back in from wall street journal, the Claritas. So I encourage people don't be hung up on the, the big name companies go for the, the little companies, the ones that clearly have something hot going on where their customers are delighted and they're solving a real problem. And that's what they're focused on. That's where you get the growth. That's where you get the opportunity. That's where you get the learning. And that's what happened for me. So one last question before we take a break here, you know, as, as much as you talk about, about taking a chance, you also were very loyal in staying there for, as you said, almost 12 years. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering, was that, was that something that transcended throughout your entire marketing team? And, and how do, how would you coach other marketers listening to this who you know, or maybe at a different mentality of, uh, well, I got to move every couple of years to move up versus yeah. seeing that company evolve. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, number one, you have to think about it more like, am I growing? Am I changing? Am I being exposed to new stuff? And am I learning? And so what I, when I would look at my time at Tableau, yeah, I mean, it was growing so fast that every couple of years, it was like a new company. It was like a different stage. You know, the old rules didn't apply. We had to invent new rules. So rather than look at it, like I need to move companies every couple of years, it's really a question of, am I learning something new every couple of years? Am I advancing either in scope? Sometimes it's not scope. Sometimes it's in seniority or amount of the depth, but really it's Instead of just looking at the um, the superficial, is the company changing? Look at what's changing for you. And I felt like over 12 years at Tableau that the company was changing, I was changing, I was learning, and that's what matters. Now, you want to, of course, see movement in terms of um, maybe you want to see title change. But even at Tableau, I only had two titles. I mean, when I started, there were no C-levels. It was all VP. And then when I became, quote unquote, C-level, chief marketing officer, was more like, we're going to go public, so we better make you a chief, you know? <laughs> So, so I didn't even have title change really, but I did have a lot of growth. And so I would encourage people rather than say, I got to move companies. I got to see growth. I got to see change. I got to see learning. And that that's the thing to look for. And so in 12 years, I never felt like I'm stuck or I'm not learning anything new. I really felt like, okay, man, I'm, I'm, I'm learning and I'm, I'm being the best person or the best uh, worker I can be, uh, best colleague I can be. So this is still a good place for me to stay. Plus it was great people and a great product and great. That's great. Yeah. I was, well, Lisa, I feel like people are already hanging on the, on the edge of their seat or their earphones as they listen in on this. We're going to take a quick break here. Keep them hanging. We will be right back on the marketer's journey with Elisa Fink. 
Want to create high converting experiences for your demand strategies that accelerate pipeline and drive revenue? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and Stantec are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies, and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com slash journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences to drive demand. All right, Elisa, everyone is still on the edge of their seat. They're waiting for us to get back from the break, and they all want to know, how did you go from $5 million in revenue to over $1 billion? What was the buyer journey I'm sure there's just this obvious playbook for doing so, but (laughs) what do you think everyone rallied around it on your team? Oh, well, so, you know, again, it's kind of depends on what phase you're in, what stage you're in. So when you're 5 million and no one's ever heard of you and there, you know, the old school way of doing things is very centralized. And here you are with an incredibly decentralized application that anyone can use and anyone can install when it, before it was, you know, data warehouses and big platforms, you know, that was a different playbook or a different way than later, even like five years later, when you're trying to hit teams and departments and mid-sized enterprises to 10 years later, when you're going full scale across the entire enterprise, billion, billions and billions of dollars of enterprises. So it varied quite a bit. But I think at the end of the day, there were two principles that I like to keep in mind, and I would remind my team constantly. And that is that number one, it's always people, individuals that you're selling to. And I would even say, even in the later years, we don't sell to enterprises. I'd say we sell to the people and enterprises. And at the end of the day, even in the beginning of the the journey, it was about individuals. So when you start to think about your customers as people, you start to see common things that they need. And then you start to think about like, why do they want to do business with you? Why do they want to know you? And when I would, we talk about this, we realize well, people want to come to your website. They want to be, they want to know what your product can do for them. They want to be made smarter. They want to be made better. So if you're really focused on the individual, the person, and I don't mean just like even in big enterprises and big deals. And when, when it's a big committee, a buying committee, it still matters. You're talking to people, individuals. And if you're focused on what they need, which for so many of them is I want to be made smarter. I want to be made better. I want to be made faster. I want my team to be faster. It's very much, it's a lot easier to really focus on what are the right things to do when you think about your customers as people sitting down, think, you know, on a laptop or on a phone or whatever during the buyer's journey, you can really get a good idea. And no journey, it's rare that a journey, they're not, they're, they're practically unique, right? So you can be really smart too about thinking about them and sort of thinking about their journeys as, well, yeah, there's a typical path, but there's so many um, outlets from that path and so many different directions. You better have a pretty good um, understanding of the different ways you can make them smarter and ensure that your content and your message is right there with them when they need to be there, according to their map of the journey, not your map of the journey. I so love like, that. Yeah. I love that. As, as you're talking through that at the beginning, I was thinking, okay, think about the audience. And as you put it, you have so many different audiences, different buyers. Yeah. I know at Tableau, you had different segments between yeah. enterprise and yeah. then a small business customer. But, yeah. but I like this idea of 
if, if I'll paraphrase what you were saying, you know, we have to engage these audiences, but then we have to actually make them smarter by delivering them into content. Yes, um, absolutely. Huge believer in that. That's why I think Uberflip, what Uberflip does is so well, so well is so important because uh, it's not in your control like it used to be. I mean, we used to be a bunch of marketers with megaphones and just outbound, outbound. And really, I used to say this all the time to our CEO, uh, my goal is 100% free leads inbound because we're just known for the place to come if you want to get smarter. And so I think that your content, the right kind of content at the right time in the right format for that buyer's individual, that individual's journey, what their map is of how they see their future, that's the key. That is the key to deliver that. And it's really, really hard to do. And so you do a lot of summarization that, you know, there's certain segments and certain kinds of paths, but you've got to have the flexibility to be there on an individual basis for every buyer, every prospect, every customer, because customers rebuy all the time too, in the right way for that individual. So a question that's more in the weeds, perhaps, but hopefully people listening can generalize this back to themselves, depending on your answer. As you scale the tableau with the the reality that you had these different audiences that would grow in, and as you said, sometimes we were selling into teams or departments Mm -hmm. versus, you know, let's use something as simple as enterprise versus small business. Mm -hmm. Did you have two different teams for each of those segments? One team that would understand how to make group A smarter and another one focused on group B because sometimes those buyers are so different. It's hard for us as marketers to think about segmenting and messaging to both. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in the later years we did, in the beginning years we didn't because actually it was really hard as a startup that was kind of disrupting a category not kind of, that's what we did. Really hard to get the attention of the big guys. So at the beginning, it was really about getting grassroots into literally one person buying one copy, one seed of Tableau, and then getting it to spread. And, and at the beginning, in the early years, most of our business came from the SMB or midsize enterprise rather than enterprise. And over the years, the dollar shifted. And so that's when we had to get better. And we did have people who started to really focus on enterprise, really focus on supporting enterprise enterprise selling. But in the early years, it was a very phone-based sales um, strategy that was land and expand. So it was one person buying one license or a couple licenses. That's a very personal sale. But then as we grew, we had to rapidly be able to keep up with uh, where our customers were going. And over the years, it definitely shifted to more that the big dollars are with the enterprises. But we still love uh, loved our um, SMBs and our midsize because, you know, they were just a different um, animal and they took a chance on Tableau earlier and um, and it was fun. It was really fun working with those kind of customers because they're a little bit more looking for an advantage and they'll take some risks that maybe some of the larger enterprises don't. That being said, I don't want to discourage people because even within an enterprise, you're going to find these people who are willing to take a chance on a small company or a mid-sized company. And so don't give up on enterprises. Treat them like people. Find your champions. Find your individuals who are willing to take you forward because they'll make a huge impact on your business. So, But it was. It was definitely a challenge. We definitely did morph into having some of our team who understand inter- understood enterprise really well and some that continued to stay with the commercial business, um, particularly, though, in product marketing. That mattered a lot. 
We really had to nail the messaging. The messaging was a big deal because at the bottom, uh, at the low, at the foundational level, you're selling the same message. You know, you're trying to give them the same benefits. But above that, very close to that layer is like, look, the reality is I work in a big scaled enterprise that has got all kinds of governance and security issues. And an SMB doesn't have those issues. They want more self-serve and they don't even want to deal with a lot of IT issues. Just install it or just give me a SaaS subscription or whatever. So you have to start refining your message and ensuring that at the core people understand what Tableau benefits are, but that it can work in your organization is the part that um, right. was was the part that you really had to start stratifying intelligently. So one last question, then we'll we'll start to wrap up here. But as you hit on that idea of, of how important product marketing was to the messaging and understanding the human, as you put it, who would you say kind of governed the overall message though? Is it product marketing or is it the content creation teams? Uh, oh, like does one great. inform the other or, or do they have to come together? Um, I definitely say they got to come together. I think the product marketing team was really good about understanding how the product worked or how it had an impact on our customers. So like you might have some folks that were very technical about it, you know, in development and, and, and they, but the product marketers were able to take that and put it in human terms, put it in terms that your prospect or your customers would understand and the benefits of how they get it and the segments that would buy it and why certain messages resonate. But then the content team was super, super important in terms of being able to take that message and then push it throughout all the different kinds of content that were going to be attractive to the different audiences and different segments and different people that you're attracting. And then of course you can't forget your demand gen people who put it out through the channels. I mean, that's super important that they get great content to the right audience in the right way. Um, So I would say product marketing was core to like, what is the message and how do we talk to these people? Content was absolutely critical for like, well, how do we, you know, tell that story in an effective way. And then how do us demand and get that story out? And the three of those groups really have to collaborate intelligently to make sure you're producing, you're putting your effort into the best kind of content for the best kind of audience. Cause as you know, Randy, marketing departments end up sometimes creating way more content than is necessary. And they often don't know what works. And so <laughs> if you can get those three groups to really collaborate well you'll create deeply useful content in the right amount, which usually means lesser for lesser amounts for the right audiences. So they value it very highly. And it requires all three of those groups really working together. Well, Lisa, I, I think you summed up this podcast really well on that last, uh, last point there. <laughs> we'll keep people around though, after a short break here, because everyone's going to want to understand how you take some personal time off, uh, especially now that you're semi-retired, as you called it. Although I, I barely <laughs> think of you as retired from what we've known <laughs> of you in this short span. But uh, we'll be right back here on The Marketer's Journey. All right, Lisa, we have unpacked your career. We've unpacked how you won over buyers to scale to a billion in revenue. But amid all those times, how did you, how did you keep sane? How did you uh, find time for yourself? And you alluded to your husband. You know, how, how did you balance that? 
It was hard. I, I look back now as a semi-retired person and think to myself, I could have done that better. <laughs> but you know, my, we love, as a family, I've got two kids, we love to travel. And so, you know, just getting out of the office and getting out of your environment just refreshes you in a way that you, three days, a week away, give yourself time to let go. It just refreshes you, it gives you new ideas, it gives you new perspective. And I think, so one of the places, a couple of places I went to, we were in Colombia, which I love oh, wow. uh, Colombia. It was incredible. Bogota was amazing. And then over the summer, this last summer, we spent a month, a month in Vietnam and Shanghai. We went to Shanghai and lived in Shanghai for two weeks in an Airbnb. And it was just fun to just be in this rhythm of a city, an incredible city for two weeks, just living there, not quite as natives, but as just part of the community. Um, we put our kids in a local um, Chinese language school and we just had a great time. And again, it just changes your perspective. What I've learned since retiring is that I really wish that I had spent more time getting away from the office. I loved customers. I love seeing customers for sure, but also just going to conferences and talking to interesting people and being part of marketing groups and, and just getting out there and just changing your perspective, taking time. I think looking back, I, I wish I had spent more time. I mean, you always feel like I got so much to do. I can't leave. Oh, gee, I was going to go to that meetup, but I'm not going to go. Go to the meetup. Go talk to people. Go get a different perspective. Go ask for advice. You know, call people up. Um, I wish I'd done more of that because I think it really helps. Again, that perspective shifting and just the input as well, just to give you just different ways of thinking about things. So I, I think that's the, the thing to do. That's great. And, and you know what? You're, you're doing a great job of doing that now through <laughs> advising, through this podcast, where I think a lot of people are going to take a lot of key takeaways away. And, and if you, if you want to take Elisa's uh, feedback <laughs> to heart, you know, tune into all of our other podcasts and listen Absolutely. to some of the great marketing leaders who are sharing how they do it, you know, take tips from each other. I think that's, that's what marketers are, are very great at is being generous with their ideas. And you've, you've been just that today. I can't thank you enough. And My for all pleasure. of our listeners who have tuned in, thank you for tuning in. Check out all of our other episodes on Stitcher, on iTunes, on Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, we can be found. This is The Marketer's Journey. And thank you so much, Elisa Fink. Thank you, Randy. It was great.